Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes won the Russian Grand Prix, but the real story was controversy at Ferrari. An arrangement at the first corner that perhaps was not honoured as quickly as some would have hoped, certainly those on the pit wall included, meant that we had a little bit of a running debate going on in the race, and then eventually Ferrari shooting itself in the foot with an MGUK failure that led to a virtual safety car and handed a 1-2 for Mercedes. So for Ferrari, after their recent strong run, this was a bit of a nightmare to say the least. So there's plenty for us to talk about on this one. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to have a look back at the race first is Autosport podcast debutant, Valentin Harushny. And I should say, you are Russian. Your expression suggests I didn't quite get your surname right, but I should add, even though I've known you for quite a few years, today is the first time I've actually learned roughly how to pronounce your surname. So perhaps you can correct us all. I asked good enough, really. Harunji, but it, it was good enough for a first attempt. Brilliant. But of course, it begins with a K in English. Yeah. So is it a backwards K in Russian or something? No, it's just an H in Russian. It's, it's a regular Russian name, really. Just the English alphabet makes it a bit weird. There we go. Just makes it very, very difficult. Well, I just know you as Val or on my phone, you are Val the Soviet. And we also have, doing his best uh, doing his best impression of someone who's asleep, but leaping into action with a microphone in hand is, is Scott Mitchell. How are you enjoying uh, Russia, and in particular, how are you enjoying our hotel with its uh, Basil Fultiesk owner, who you haven't had any run-ins with, but I've been, I've not had run-ins directly with him, but I've been there while he's been uh, doing quite a bit of bellowing. I thought the, uh, the the hotel owner was perfectly pleasant, to be honest, and I'm actually having quite a nice time in Sochi. I, um, I'm new to the to the Russian Grand Prix scene. You're, I was here last year, I'm here this year, but I wasn't part of the initial contingent that came here when the race joined the calendar in 2014. And there does appear to be a colossal hangover for the people that were here first and foremost. They seem to have a real struggle adapting to, to what Sochi offers from a from an evening point of view, restaurants, hotels, whatever. They, 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 there seemed to be a real struggle in the first year to get food. So now people just generally hate the race and, and a lot of the media seem to think that it's a really negative one to go to. I actually quite like it. It's not the most exciting Grand Prix, but in terms of an actual play, Sochi itself is, is quite pretty geographically. It's quite it's quite pleasant. And actually, I think that there's a decent multitude of, of restaurant options. And I quite like the food here. So I actually quite like coming here. Yeah, I, I, I do enjoy it. And I think the uh, the first year, 2014, obviously I was here, then it was a real struggle to to get food. And it was all a little bit uh, troubling. There were some sanctions going around. But I remember going to an Italian restaurant and waited for about three hours. 
only to be told that basically nothing on the menu was available because they had no mozzarella, which obviously is a very, very traumatic memory for uh, those of us who are here. But uh, no, it has uh, it has grown on me. Slightly strange place where we are, Sochi. It's not really Sochi. It's Adler, really, isn't it? But uh, yeah, it's uh, a perfectly pleasant place to, to be. But it did produce uh, a race with a lot of talking points. It maybe in, in itself wasn't the most dramatic uh, spectacle as a motor race, but yeah, what a story. I mean, we've got to go straight to this Ferrari battle Charles Leclerc on pole, Sebastian Vettel third place, Lewis Hamilton second on the the grid. The Ferrari clearly had a an advantage. But Val, can you just sort of talk through what we know of what the arrangement was at the start, how well they executed it, and kind of lay the foundations for what was to follow? So yeah, so Ferrari have been unusually forthcoming in the sense that they've pretty much openly said that they uh, orchestrated the start of the race. They had a plan in mind. They said that plan was executed perfectly. Charles was supposed to lead off the line and give a tow to Vettel, not Hamilton. He stayed to the left. He gave a tow to Vettel. Vettel overtook him on the run to turn two. Charles didn't fight. And that was that. There was a change for the lead. And the next step of that plan was supposed to be that um, Sebastian gives the place back. And obviously, as we all saw, that didn't quite materialize. It didn't materialize for a lot of laps. Sebastian said that you know, Charles was not quick, was not close enough. And then he only got further and further and further away. And eventually Ferrari had to sort of potentially take matters into their own hands, even though that's they're not really saying that's what they've done. But I think general consensus is that's what they've done in terms of strategy. Yeah, I think that one was uh, was pretty clear. I mean, the whole the whole thing of the arrangement at the start, I kind of understand tactics at the start. It's a very, very long run to, to turn to, which is effectively the first corner. We did see last year the Mercedes drivers kind of had a plan to to block the track to avoid the Ferraris getting in amongst them. So it's not unprecedented, but it was uh, it's clear it was a fairly convoluted plan because it was all about obviously, as you said, Leclerc effectively left the door open by them not causing each other problems and, and by giving Vettel the toe. So he did what he was meant to do, and then once they'd had a bit of a look at the the start parameters as they refer to it and works out that basically they both had similar starts so presumably there was a contingency that Vettel had been told that if he made a much better start he'd be allowed to it's just this little complicated uh, arrangement and it's uh, I mean personally I can understand why Ferrari tried to do something but I even when it happened before it started to go a bit sour as I was complaining about in the media centre I didn't really like what they were doing honestly I personally really dug it I, and I dug them being very open about what they were doing I think well, they had to be open didn't they there wasn't any way not to be uh, you know a Ferrari of the past would have tried to make something up but this this Ferrari was very very open about what they were trying to do and it, it might not sit well with most people it might not sit well with racing purists but at the end of the day F1 teams are supposed to be smart enough to where they can deliver the optimal result and they're supposed to do everything that's in their power to deliver the optimal result. And if they look a little bit bad doing it, well, so be it. Now, I know you think that certainly that they left themselves open to exactly what happened. One of their drivers seemingly disobeying that order and throwing a wrench in the plans and everything going very, very sour. But I think the plan itself, without the sort of human fallibility aspect of it, I mean, at the end of the first lap, they were one two. They started 1-3, then in the first lap they were 1-2, they were checking out with the race. Uh, as if everybody played the role as it was expected, then it would have been a Ferrari 1-2. Well, I mean, the engine probably would have gone anyway, but from the strategy point of view, they gained a position, they didn't expose themselves to any sort of danger. They they looked good after that first lap. Well, Scott, what, what do you make of this plan? Because it's fairly clear that well, I get the impression, I don't know this for certain, I'm not entirely convinced Vettel was entirely on board with this, because obviously the, the driver starting behind, this was always going to be a thing that probably disadvantaged him. Obviously, maybe it helped him stay ahead of, or get ahead of Hamilton, although he, he dispatched him pretty quickly anyway. Obviously, he also had the advantage of soft tyres to the mediums that Hamilton started on, so as well as the straight line speed advantage, the extra bite off the line. And the fact that Vettel kind of played it as he did, suggested to me maybe that this was one imposed on him rather than one he was totally on board with from the very start. Well, I do wonder what he actually thought the agreement was because he said after the race that he thinks he did stick to what was agreed. And I won- well, We're back to Prost and Senna at Imola in 89 again, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. I do wonder whether or not... And Let's let's take Seb at his word for a minute, which is difficult to do when he seems to have just ignored a team order. Perhaps he thinks that the team agreement was that he, if he gets into the lead, 
then he will he needs to move aside for Leclerc should Leclerc get to within that range. So if Vettel's not in control of the race, then he needs to move back aside for Leclerc. But Vettel, as we as we saw in those opening laps, he was saying, "Well, if you want me to let Charles pass, Charles needs to get up to the back of me," and that wasn't something that Leclerc was capable of. Vettel did seem to have actually quite decent speed in that first stint, and then there would have been the combination of however comfortable Vettel was in clear air and Leclerc losing pace because he was behind, damaging his tyres, etc., etc. So, slightly complicated. I don't I don't really think Vettel's got a leg to stand on, to be honest, because even, even if it is slightly forced upon him, ultimately, do a better job over the first 15-odd races of the season and assert your dominance as number one, and then you probably don't have the 21-year-old second-year F1 driver in that position where they're being treated as equals. It's got to that point with Ferrari where I now feel that the big the big downside of, of the team order, which I do agree with you, I, I see the argument with, and I know there were some that compared it to the botched attempt at manipulating their positions at the start of the season, but I do think it was slightly different to, to that. I don't think it's quite a direct comparison there was an attempt to solve it before the problem arose yeah exactly that that sort of backfired a bit exactly so but the big thing for me is that simply by having it in place it opened the door for Vettel who let's not forget has a bit of previous when it comes to defying a a team order uh famously at Red Bull in uh, uh, when they were he was at Red Bull with uh, Mark Webber in Malaysia um and he he openly defied an order to 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 basically yeah to to not do what he went on and did uh which was uh which was to overtake and win the race so he was he was in the wrong there so maybe ferrari's naive for for trusting him and what the upshot is the big takeaway is that 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 element of trust between the team and the driver and the two drivers must now be absolutely shattered because Although when I asked Leclerc this after the race, he said that he still trusts Vettel and that they need to trust each other. I don't see how he can. And I can't see how, based on his reaction over the radio, the constant, the exclamation from Leclerc that he had done everything he'd been told and he expected it to be reversed and it wasn't, I don't see how that trust can exist. And if you're working as a team and there's no trust there, I don't th- I don't think the situation's salvageable. Well, there's, there's a whole multitude of... Uh... Of things in this first stint of the race because once Vettel was ahead, a I think Ferrari did try to swap it round too early. I don't, I don't see why. Yeah, I agree. Why they did it that early? You wet the race one and sort it out later on, unless your second driver is significantly faster than the leader. And all the evidence was actually that Leclerc wasn't faster. In fact, if you look at it, laps four to twenty-one on average, Vettel was 0.185 seconds a lap quicker. And I don't, I don't think Ferrari necessarily anticipated that. Now. Secondly, just because it was the wrong time to do it doesn't mean Vettel was correct to defy the team order and say, no, we'll keep pushing on. Now, I don't think that was even Vettel's primary reason for doing it. I think he did it because he wanted to keep that car ahead for as long as he can in the hope that he could keep it there, that he could be a bit far away, that a Mercedes could get in the way or something because he wanted to win the the race after all. And, And especially if he wasn't completely on board, as we speculate, he might not have been with the whole plan. You can't necessarily be too surprised at that. And then it's just complicated. So Leclerc, of course, was told on several consecutive laps, right, he's going to let you by. And then it didn't happen. And eventually Lauren Mecky, as a sporting director, had to get on the radio and say, right, we're going to we're going to do this later. And there's a there was a bit on the radio where where Leclerc basically said in in response to that message and they do it later, he said, I completely understand. The only thing is I respected, I gave him the slipstream, and then he said at the end, manage the situation to that now that was a very very clear loaded statement from him um so that's sort of my interpretation of that of that that section i don't i I quite like vettel's ruthlessness in what he tried to do actually this is a guy who clearly is trying to fight for his career but val you were there when uh when the the ferrari driver spoke at the end of the race so he had both of them in in the same place and we're wondering about whether this kind of makes that relationship a bit more toxic certainly my reading of it this this might be one of the ones we look back on and say oh that's when it ramped up from a little bit of uneasiness to something a little bit more potentially destructive how did you make the whole make of the whole what did you make of the whole atmosphere there right so it's important to say first of all that um it was a few hours after the race so emotions will have still been running a bit high and ultimately a few days on both of them might look at it and be like actually you know what this isn't worth 
sort of throwing our entire team dynamic out of the window for. That said, by gosh, they looked uncomfortable there. They were separated by Mattia Bonotte during what was, you know, sort of a session in a hospitality unit that was being sort of torn apart as side of them, collected to leave the paddock. And they were all stood sort of up against the wall and both Vettel and Leclerc, and I'd say Vettel in particular, looked like profoundly uncomfortable teenagers being told off. Leclerc, of course, had nothing to be told off over. But Vettel, I think, pretty clearly was. Uh, Mattia Bonato defended him publicly. He, he, sort of, he backed him publicly. He said neither of his drivers broke a pre-race agreement. I think that... But they did emphatically... Well, Vettel did emphatically ignore repeated orders. That that much Benotto cannot get away because that's that's a matter of record on the on the radio. And and Mattia at, at one point said, "I think that's fair enough," which opens that opens a whole can of worms. But I understand I understand the desire to protect both your drivers from the media and try to sort it out internally. Well, well he'll want to he'll want to sort it out in private and get it under control. I fear yeah. that might be a bit of a horse has already bolted situation now. And you know, problem is for me it, the the thing with the way Leclerc will see it after a defeat in Singapore that it was very obvious that he did not take very well because of the circumstances, because of how it played out. And after nine consecutive races of getting the upper hand over Vettel in qualifying, Leclerc will probably expect a touch more respect from his teammate when it comes to this sort of thing. And for me, most importantly, is that imagine for a second that Vettel's engine didn't fail and imagine that Ferrari's plan to get him swapped back during the pit stops backfired. And imagine that Sebastian Vettel figure out a way to keep the lead of the race until the checkered flag over Leclerc. What then? What like You've won a race, congratulations. That might be the last race you ever win for Ferrari. That's a, that's, you've burned a bridge for sure. Your teammates will be forever livid with you. The team is not going to trust you with much of anything anymore. You're 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 going to put your long term F one employment in danger by doing something like that. Yeah, I think I think you're right on that one. It's it's a it was a huge huge risk even if, even if it came off. But it, it was interesting that Ferrari clearly uh, made a, a a proper effort to to take it out of Vettel's hands. Now, I should say Mattia Bonotto claimed that the strategies just worked out the way they wanted. They uh, they said that. Uh, Leclerc's left rear was uh, was going and he wants to pit, which is true. Leclerc was losing a little bit of time to Hamilton, not monstrous amounts. He's only a couple of tenths a lap in the last three laps before he pitted compared to what he'd, he'd lost over the previous three or what his pace over the previous three laps. So I don't think it was it was critical. He said they left Vettel out because they didn't want to be vulnerable to the to the VSC or the safety car and the Mercs dropping them. Well, if you're that worried about that, you didn't need to bring Leclerc in that early. Now, there is no way that it just so happened that the strategies of the two drivers led to, uh, led to Leclerc being given the four-lap undercut he needed to get ahead. That was clearly, and quite rightly, the Ferrari pit wall saying, right, we'll take control of this and sort it out, even though Bonotto claims no and came up with a bit of a woolly explanation for that. Are you sure it wasn't just really coincidental that the amount of time they, let, they left Vettel on track was exactly the amount of time Leclerc needed to pit go quickly on fresh tyres and then emerge ahead just as Vettel came out of the pit lane. So Mattia Bonotto would have us believe. Mm, I don't buy it. Isn't that, that's fantastic, isn't it? How that sorted itself out, that's wonderful, isn't it? God, Ferrari got, they got really lucky. Yeah, yeah, just... Really just, lucky around the pit stop phase. Just just one of those things, wasn't it? And yeah. obviously the fact that the undercut was much, much weaker at uh, a circuit lot of Sochi and it took basically four times as long for, for Leclerc to make up almost, to, to make up only a little bit more than yeah, what Vettel cla- made up that, in one that, lap. That, in that, classic, that just, classic team strategy where you bring one car in and you just leave the other car out for four laps. The thing that like happens that. all the time. No, it's silly. I, I know I'm being really cynical. Um, no, and correct. And actually, I stress Ferrari were correct to do that. Yeah, because because that's Vettel, Vettel was, gonna, Vettel what, was only going to give up the lead if you dragged him kicking and screaming. He'd have all these things he'd have. Oh, he's not close enough. I'm quicker than him. I'll get him get him within this and I'll do it. He was only gonna get gonna lose that lead if they actually made him. And the strategy they forced him to. I mean, short of Vettel, who I'm sure knew what was going on, just cutting it short himself and say, right, I'm boxing now, like it or not. There was no way for him to... He, he was snookered on that. Well, and if I'd been in charge of the Ferrari pit wall and Vettel did that, I'd have let him sit there with no tyres. 
for a few yeah. seconds because it, it, it sounds stupid. And look, I agree with what you said about I do kind of admire that ruthlessness about Vettel for doing this because there is something quite appealing about that. It shows, he's fallen, not give, it shows he's not given up. Exactly. And it's almost that like, ah, oh, the fallen giant hasn't quite fallen. There's some fight in the guy left. This is Vettel is peak at, at Red Bull, that emotional determined to win at all costs. There's not even a title on the line. He just wants to win another Grand Prix. But I also suspect it's motivated partly by wanting to just sort of reassert his dominance within the team. And part of me does also wonder if there's still a little bit of lingering after effect of Vettel being slightly annoyed that Leclerc didn't honour the situation at Monza in qualifying. Yeah, well, we should say, yeah. Because the team said we're not happy with Leclerc after that. And in fact, there was that comment on the radio, which kind of, we've forgiven you for what happened yesterday. So let's not pretend Leclerc, because these are, these are two it's three drivers. races in a row that there have been team, yeah, yeah, a, a team controversy. And, and this is a young driver trying to make Ferrari his team and an old stager trying to hang on and say, no, I know, I think you're a bit better than me, but I'm, I'm just going to try and stay on. Got every and trick in the book. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I do, I, I like that. I, I, I don't necessarily agree with it. And I don't have to go along with it, but I will very much enjoy the theatrics that go with it. However, as Ferrari in that situation, you have one horse to back and it's Leclerc. Short term, medium term, long term. Leclerc is your bet, not Vettel. Agreed. So you, what you can't do in that situation is be bullied by uh, an emotional, an arrogant, uh, uh, a sulking, an overreacting, however you want to, whatever characterization you want to make of Vettel. Calculatingly ruthless, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't, have, I mean, a lot of champions are that. Exactly. So, whatever you want to say Vettel was, I don't think as Ferrari you can put up with that. So, going back to what I said about I'd have let him rot there in the pit lane without any tyres, at that point in the race, what you've tried to do at the start is manoeuvre a situation as agreed before the Grand Prix to make your cars run first and second. And what Ferrari could have done is when Vettel did what he did is they could have collapsed under the pressure. They could have basically gone, we'll deal with this later. Leclerc's 21. He's going to have a lot more chances. We can explain ourselves to him and we're just going to let Seb get away with it because you've still got the result you wanted first and second, even if it's not gone the way the way you exactly planned before the race. However, I don't think you can do that because of the aforementioned reasons. Leclerc's the number one and Vettel's the one being petulant in this situation. So I think in that in that scenario, if if you do everything in your power to get them to swap and Vettel refuses, then you need to take matters into your own hand. And I really, really admire Ferrari for m- manipulating those pit stops so that Leclerc got in front. I don't I, I don't like the fact that they then won't admit to that. But I do maybe understand why they won't publicly say to Vettel, we did that to stitch you up. Oh, the Vettel th- knows, though, doesn't he? I think he does. But as long as, you, I guess they've got a bit of deniability if they don't say it, uh, say it out loud, basically. Um, but what I would have done is I, I, I would have let it get to the point where I would sacrifice the one-two that the whole thing was about to prove a point to Vettel. Because you, what you can't do in that situation is you can't have a driver manipulating the the goings-on within a team, being untrustworthy and acting as if there is no consequence. Because there was a time, and it was at Red Bull, when he would ignore such team orders, where Vettel was good enough to get away with this, and he was the big fish. So, ultimately, what can you do? It's a bit like Max Verstappen at Red Bull now. Max can probably get away with sort of saying what he wants and acting how he wants, because what are Red Bull going to do? Are they really going to turn around and just say, oh, we don't like you, we're now going to back Alex Albon? That's, that's not going to happen. But Ferrari and in, at Ferrari, Vettel doesn't have that luxury now. If he steps out of line, then it's not even that Ferrari will turn to Leclerc. Leclerc's already built enough momentum over the, the last sort of eight races or so now to, to prove that he's worthy of it on his own. So I'm just pleased that Ferrari put his foot down. I'm glad it didn't come to the point where they had to effectively potentially compromise their own race to do it and I'm sure there are people who think Ferrari pressed the self-destruct button on the pit wall and broke Vettel's MG UK deliberately because that was that was deserved karma and 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 that was the the punishment for his actions early on but if it had come to doing something to to put their foot down harder I'd have been completely on board with that one interesting thing looking ahead to the next race in Suzuka is when Multi 21 happened in Malaysia, which is the second race of the season, we went to China next a couple of weeks later. And initially in Malaysia, Vettel didn't realise quite how 
sort of how badly taken his ignoring of the team orders was when he uh, when he didn't uh, when he when he passed Weber. But by the time he got to China, he clearly thought about it, and he did he did his uh, media session on the Thursday, and he basically said, "Well, do you know what? I'm better than him. I was quicker. Passed him." live with it and he kind of did it as a it was kind of no shame yeah i did it so what i'm the i'm the big dog here so it'll be interesting to see how he how he reacts to that but uh of course as you alluded to there scott this great thing where ferrari probably thought well a bit of a rough start to the race oh yeah we've got them the right way round we've got the pace we've got mercedes covered as long as we don't get a safety car or a virtual safety car we'll be fine and then (laughs) the k goes on vettel's car and um yeah they cause their own virtual safety car which which gives mercedes and lewis hamilton uh, the the lead which is a, a tremendous uh, a tremendous irony but of course lots of conspiracy theories val about people s- suggesting about why vettel stopped but we can be sure it was a legitimate k failure and he wasn't messing about with where he parked it or anything he did what he was told so yeah for, first of all material made it because everybody when in the media center were watching it i think everybody got the same question immediately the pit lane's right there. Why did he not get to the pit lane? Why did you tell him to stop right and, away? And I think they right. that the, from, I was on board with him and yeah. it happened. The engine was right. He could yeah. have got to the pit lane. Yeah, but at the end of the day, Matteo Bernardo has made it pretty clear and apparently was basically we've had some of our colleagues ask some other team bosses to, in regard, it's, it's a safety thing. You can't gamble on a safety thing. This is a sporting event. You can't gamble on a safety thing to ensure a victory end of the day this is something that you always have to respect 100 percent. and i have to tip my hat to to benotto and to ferrari for you know sort of compromising their race to to make sure that everybody gets away scot-free and unheard they had to pull him over right there apparently according to race director michael massey's comments uh vettel did a very good job pulling over he's done as good a job as he could have in that section of the track to the point where he could have maybe avoided a virtual safety car that basically cost Ferrari the victory if only the car wasn't in an unsafe state, which it was. Yeah, I mean, I, I must admit, I think if I was in the Ferrari pit wall, I'd have got that car to the pit lane, even if you stop it in the pit entry or or something. Um, I just wonder whether it was just standard procedure to to stop it when that happens, because obviously you don't want a live car. I did. So I do wonder if they could have overridden that. I, I'd have wanted to. We should say, this is the same Ferrari team that did... Uh, you know they had the unsafe release in where is it Germany with with they only got the fine for, you know that's pretty dangerous in pit lane. So yeah, I'm, I mean in a way with with the the the, the potential for these cars to be unsafe if the uh, if the uh, the hybrid's not isolated, see it. But yeah, it, it was just just poor. But I, I should say I don't think Vettel could have parked anywhere else really. He kept out of the way, and it was just it was just one of those things. It's funny though because I switched to Leclerc's on board. And so when the, the virtual safety car was uh, called, he he just said, uh, yeah, we've lost this, haven't we? So well, where's that effect? Well, Hamilton's going to get ahead. He knew straight away uh, <laughs> what had happened. Yeah, I think we we all knew. I think it's, you know, it's a bit of Murphy's Law, really. In that race for Ferrari, could it not have happened, really? It was always going to happen. It was written in the stars, I guess, in well, a sense. Well, there was also always the risk because Mercedes had done Q2 on the mediums. Ferrari started on the softs. So there, there were yeah. two approaches. I remember speaking to Scott uh, before the race about this. There's two approaches. One, if the undercut's powerful enough, brackets, it wasn't, which wasn't a total surprise, then they could have surprised Ferrari by trying to nick an earlier pit stop and maybe hope they didn't notice and cover it with whoever was whoever was leading. But that wasn't really going to work, so they had to run longer. And in running longer, either you execute an overcut by being quicker, they probably they wouldn't have been able to do that, or you just leave it out there and hope for a virtual safety car or a safety car, which is what they've got. So, uh, yeah, that credit to Mercedes for having that, that little gamble on uh, Q2. Well, the whole point of it was to put themselves in a position where they could do something different to Ferrari in the race. So yeah, they managed it well and won and finished one too. I kind of liken that to uh, our beautiful success a week ago, Ed, when we had a massive points haul in fantasy Premier League with Man City midfielder Kevin De Bruyne. When he when we vice captained him, we vice captained him. Our first choice captain didn't play, and therefore the points got shifted onto De Bruyne. 
and there's a lot of people just saying oh well this is people like that are just really lucky because that's no it's not the whole point of making a decision like that is that you put yourself in a position where you you basically stack the deck in your favor so if something does go slightly differently to how you expect it to go then it then suddenly plays out in your favor and that's exactly what mercedes mercedes did i've criticized ferrari in the past for not doing that and doing pointless gambles rather than just playing their hand and being there for in, in case something uh, in case something happens this wasn't a case of the the mercedes and the ferraris both being on on softs in the first stint and mercedes coming over the radio to to, to lewis and saying okay box opposite to leclerc that's all that's doing there is okay we're going to try and see if we can make something different happen the fact that they were on the different tires put themselves in a position from the very beginning to do something different yeah, very, very much so. Uh, we should say Ferrari had one last, ultimately, it was hindsight, it was an error. I do understand why they did it. Once the safety car, the virtual safety car turned to a real safety car because George Russell went off under the VSC, there was some kind of failure in the front left of the car. I'm told it wasn't a brake failure, it was something else. He suggest, he asked over the radio, what was the wing caught under the under the wheel or something, but they weren't, they weren't entirely sure before they all uh, scarpered from the circuit. So... The safety car goes out. They decided to pit Leclerc to get him onto onto softs. That cost him one place only to Bottas, of course. Verstappen had started ninth thanks to his five-place grid penalty, so he wasn't anywhere near close enough. So basically, they sacrificed second place to drop to third to give themselves a, a, a tyre advantage that they hoped would allow Leclerc to pass Bottas and Hamilton in an ideal world. Of course, he resolutely just couldn't. He couldn't, he couldn't even really seriously threaten Bottas. No, and I, I was quite surprised by that because although we know that Ferrari's engine advantage manifests itself most powerfully in um, short bursts, so let's say qualifying lap or potentially at a safety car restart, maybe on the first lap of the Grand Prix, um, I certainly don't think it was a coincidence that Leclerc didn't come under threat from anyone other than Vettel on the run down to turn one, despite being in clear air at the front of the field, because as we saw at Monza, that car doesn't need a tow and it doesn't need DRS and it could still hang hang on compared to a car chasing behind when it's at full whack. So you had that situation for Ferrari normally. And then when it came, when it came to Leclerc needing to pass Bottas, even with DRS, even with that massive run down to turn two through the flat out right, right hand kink of turn one, he never even came close to amount of proper attack. There were two sort of like half-hearted looks at the inside. Yeah, exactly. Which, which I was quite surprised by because it's not just the case of Ferrari should fundamentally have that speed advantage over Mercedes to launch an attack. I also just fancy Leclerc in attack much more than I do Bottas in defence because we've seen before that Bottas, you know, not to not to be too critical or harsh on him. It's not that he just rolls over. It's just. He's not the sternest of racers, is he? So the fact that Mercedes then converted that into an actually a relatively comfortable one-two at the finish was just the the final insult to Ferrari, wasn't it? Well, we should talk a little bit about Mercedes. We've we've sort of touched on what they did with the tyres, Val. But what should we make of this one-two from from Mercedes? I think from what I could see, Hamilton's qualifying lap was good. In fact, it was, it was tidier than than Leclerc's. I don't think he had any chance of, of taking pole. He still managed to split the Ferraris. And he just did what what he could in the race. Yep, luck played its part, but just as Ferrari made life difficult for themselves with a bit of madness, Mercedes did pretty much everything they they could have done. I mean, I think most importantly, Lewis Hamilton did pretty much everything he could have done. I mean, if you look at that first stint where he was keeping that car basically there or thereabout with Leclerc at sort of a gap that was keeping pretty consistent and was closing down by the end because of the the tyre difference, obviously. Um... He was obliterating Valtteri in that first stint. He was something like seven or eight tenths quicker all the time uh, yeah, on, at Bottas, a track at a Bottas, track where Bottas is supposed to be yeah, yeah, the king. Historically, he's been good yeah. here, and Bottas also did himself down a bit early on by spending three laps behind Carlos Sainz after the safety car, which cost him dropped him like five point three seconds behind Hamilton straight away. So I think I think it's been a pretty you know a pretty format a pretty pattern like race for mercedes when it comes to the second part of the season is that they only have one driver on top of their game right now and they have another driver who's just sort of hanging on to see out the season and i don't i don't want to be too harsh towards Valtteri, who is a better driver than people have given him credit for since he joined mercedes just because you know so lewis does tend to make people look a bit average but that early spark that he's had in the season 
it's just nowhere to be seen. It's and particularly in race trim, he just he does not have it. And he, if you look at sort of the final stint too, Valtteri said that sort of his car was not so good in the first stint and it got much better in the second stint. But you could see just how how much easier Hamilton was having it, how he could keep the gap exactly where he wanted, how he could fire in a fastest lap for laughs basically in the very end, how he absolutely didn't really seemingly have to break a sweat in that final stint. It was, it was another imperious race by him. Obviously, circumstances added it to him, but he did everything he could have done to put himself in position to benefit from it. And we should uh, talk a, a bit about the, the Red Bulls. Interesting weekend for them, Scott, because they both came into the weekend with a five-place grid penalty for taking fresh Honda V6s. Uh, things then went wrong for Albon. He ended up starting from the, the pit lane. Verstappen finished fourth. Well, he cleared the, the midfielders he needed to, then he just sort of sat in fourth place. Albon came through to, to fifth, but... What do we make of the fact that Red Bull looked look very strong on Friday and still early in qualifying? You're thinking, oh, yeah, Verstappen could be in this. And then by the end of qualifying, there they are. What was it? It was about uh, uh, miles down, weren't they, in the, in, the, in the end? Oh, you see, this grid's confusing me. Yeah, so 32-3 from Verstappen. Uh, Pole was a 31-6. So, yeah, um, just just weren't at the races in, uh, in qualifying. No, this, this is not a track that really suits Red Bull. Honda has improved, but it still does have a slight deficit to Mercedes and a bigger deficit to to Ferrari. So I don't think they ever really expected at absolute max chat to be quite on the level, especially now Ferrari's got that car to the point where it can at least go through corners competently without losing too much time. So we looked, didn't we, at the mini set to comparison between uh, Leclerc and, and Hamilton. Uh, and I know that's Ferrari versus Mercedes, but it was incredible just to see how much faster in a straight line the Ferrari is. It just has something that the others don't at the moment. So you know that a Red Bull that still has an engine partner playing catch up isn't is immediately going to be struggling. But as the weekend went on, uh, Max Verstappen was just complaining more and more about just not quite having the balance he wanted. I think the way the wind went in in qualifying sort of caught him out a little bit and. You know, it cost you a tenth or two here, and then by the time they got into the race, through all through the first stint, he was complaining about just not having the grip at the front of the car. And that's been a little bit of a trait of the Red Bull at times this season. From sort of Austria onwards, it went away, but in Singapore last weekend, it wasn't quite as as good as they wanted it to be. They chalked that up to a to a going in the wrong direction after some sim work, and they thought that they had a better handle on it at Sochi, but. Yeah, again, as the weekend went on, it just sort of slipped away again. But speaking to team boss Christian Horner briefly after the race, he sort of suggested that they've got a good idea of sort of what they were missing. They actually think that this was comfortably their most competitive showing at Sochi for some time. A little bit like Silverstone, but nowhere near as competitive as they were at Silverstone earlier this year. So I think they're still fairly, fairly happy. But I, I think the fact that they were so far off ultimately, even if it was... In the second stint, for example, just a two or three temps a lap, I'll be on a harder tyre. It, it just wasn't perfect. But I, I do think the second, that final stint at the end was sort of a better sign because there's also that element of earlier in the race, you don't really know how hard they're pushing it because it became clear early on that all Verstappen was going to get in that race was, was, was fifth, really, before Vettel retired. So why why push everything to the limit? Why risk a failure or or put unnecessary stress through the engine when all you're going to do is get through to fifth. So there's a chance in the first stint that the, the gap was ex- exa- exaggerated by, by Verstappen maybe not running at full tilt. So it wasn't a perfect weekend by for, for Red Bull. It, it wasn't a massively impressive one either on paper, but I think they were fairly happy with it. It certainly wasn't as bad a, or as big a surprise for them as Singapore, for example. How about Alex Albon? Because obviously he had a very difficult run through practice and qualifying. He backed it into the wall in qualifying, which uh, meant that he ended up taking a load of more power unit components. He started from the, the pit lane. But if you look at uh, what he actually did in the race coming through to uh, to fifth place, that was the best possible result. Eight cars he passed on track, jumped five in pit stops and then gained one from uh, Vettel. Retiring, I think, was pretty much the, the final reckoning. But what, what do you think, Val? Was this a good weekend or a bad weekend for Albon, or could there be some nuance and it's not quite that binary? There is some nuance, but obviously we have to say that for every for for the way F one lives, your your last race is the most important one, and I actually say your last session is the most important one because Friday and Saturday for Alex they were 
terrible. If we're being, you know, if we're not mincing words, they were really, really bad. Even take the crash out of it, and the crash was not good. But if you if you take it out of it, the pace was it was not there. It was not what you would expect it. It was honestly probably worse than any Pierre Gasly weekend I can remember. Oh, harsh words. Uh, it, was, it was not at the races. The, he, he couldn't get his head around the car at the venue. He was, I think there were sessions where he was two seconds off. There were sessions where he was one second off. You're not supposed to be that far off in, a, you know, in, the, in the same F1 machinery. It just doesn't happen. And yet, you know, come Sunday, suddenly the race pace is there. He's, you know, he's obviously already proven himself to be a very capable overtaker and he's proven it again here at a track where most other people have had no joy whatsoever making up ground. Alex Albon was very, very impressive today. He was very robust. He was very brave. He was taking risks. The pace was better than it had looked all weekend. And, you know, whereas sort of Verstappen had stagnated because, according to him, they've sort of nailed the car right away on Friday. Clearly, Albon had nailed nothing on Friday. But by Sunday, he was exactly where he needed to be. And for me, and this this probably shows how, how finicky I can be with my opinion, come Saturday, I was thinking, well, blimey, Red Bull might actually have a dilemma on their, head, their hands for 2020. They might have to think about maybe either bringing Gasly back in, or they might have to think about rethinking that whole Hulkenberg position that they had. But, you know, come Sunday, Albon reminded himself why the first races, maybe not an ultimate pace, were the most encouraging. But they were most encouraging because when he got himself in a hole uh, grid position-wise because of Honda penalties or whatever, he was able to make up ground. He did not get lost in traffic, maybe the same way Gasly did. I, I don't know if he's out and out quicker, but I know he's hitting the right notes for Red Bull. And I think this was honestly a huge step for him to keeping that seat for 2020. So yeah, I think it was a it was a good week. Yeah, it's the only caveat we had to add to that is obviously the safety car helped him in terms of when he made the pit stop. That meant that he was a lot closer to Sainz, uh, Norris, Perez, and Hulkenberg than he than he would have been. But you know, you could you <laughs> he's had to start from the pit lane, so uh, you know, yeah, we, we'll give him the uh, the benefit of the doubt on that one. And uh, you, you can only capitalise on on uh, the race situation that's uh, that's in front of you. Uh, now looking a little bit further down it was another good weekend for McLaren wasn't it strong performance Carlos Sainz finished sixth Lando Norris finished eighth Sainz even ran ahead of Bottas as mentioned a little bit early on now it's quite a tricky weekend for McLaren I'm not, they struggled a bit with this kind of track surface or track surfaces roughly close to this it's a slightly weird one here this year and they, they did struggle early in the weekend but come qualifying it sort of switched on and Sainz in particular I'm watching him in FP3 down the last couple of corners and Norris looked the much more confident of the McLaren drivers but come qualifying Sainz Nailed it, and yeah, yet another Class B, as it were, victory for Science. I thought Science was excellent. He's he's just he's so quietly effective, isn't he? In that McLaren, he he can have those Fridays where he's still just trying to get on top of things, and they're not it's not quite coming together, and she needs a bit of refinement here or there, and maybe Norris starts the weekend out and out as the quicker of the two, but Science is just so good at threading everything together. And this was just another one of those because during the race, Sainz never looked like throwing away that that Class B lead, whereas Norris is the one who looked like he slipped back into the to the clutches of the cars behind and and and, and lost a bit of ground. But Sainz is just uh, he's just excelling. He's going from strength to strength since he's joined McLaren at the start of this year. Uh, he seems to be really, really reveling in a situation that that is his own. That he doesn't have to worry about his medium term future. And I, I think he's embraced that team leader status and uh, yeah, I just fully deserving of another Class B win. I don't know how close he is to wrapping up best of the rest in the championship now from a from a Class B point of view. But he is um, he, he's he's looking absolutely well, well worth whatever McLaren did to, to get him on his books for this season. Yeah, he's had a. A run of retirements that were not his fault prior to this race so that's hurt him a little bit but he's, he's going for sixth in the championship Gasly currently holds that but I think it's going to be between him and Albon most likely given Gasly he's going to have to fight quite hard for, for Toro Rosso points as well as Gasly is uh, is driving on his return he looked quite good this weekend uh, but for McLaren yeah, the fact Norris was, was eight 33 point lead now they've got over Renault in the battle for fourth with five races remaining that's still within range of a, of a freak result or something or not uh, Renault are going to get 33 points in one hit but you know if McLaren have a disaster and Renault 
have a little bit of luck with the timings ahead and come away with a third and a fourth in a race that can liven things up. But it does look like probably that's uh, they're sort of inching towards having one hand on fourth place, which would be brilliant for uh, for McLaren and, and Renault yet again this weekend. They had a car that was near the front of the midfield, seventh and tenth fastest in qualifying, but Hulkenberg actually faster, unlike in, in, in the past few weekends. Ricardo admitted uh, when I asked him about this on Saturday evening that just wasn't quite confident in the in the car, which I do wonder if it's because the, the track surface means it takes a little bit little bit longer just for the tyres to load up when you uh, when you uh, enter into the the corners. But we saw Hulkenberg stitched up a little bit by the the safety car. He ended up being shuffled back to tenth right at the end by uh, by Kevin Magnussen. Uh, Ricardo had the the contact in the instant with Giovinazzi and and Grosjean at the start, so his race was basically over before it began. So one point this weekend, Val for Renault when they they sh- they weren't going to be coming away with double digits necessarily, but they should have picked up more points again, shouldn't they? They should have picked up more points, and in particular, I think as you said, Hulkenberg should have picked up more points because he's looked very clearly the better Renault driver this weekend, which makes you think, because Ricardo is, you know, on really considerable money at Renault and money he deserves, but the fact that his teammate, who can have a weekend like this where he basically dominates him, for being entirely honest, and is probably about to find himself out of a job in F1, is it it does raise an eyebrow too. But yeah, it was... I think Hulkenberg was more or less pretty much blameless in how... It all unraveled for him too. You know, you say the safety car, obviously. Towards the end, he had the the power loss issue, which got him out of range for Magnussen's five-second penalty. Basically, it went really wrong. And at the end of the day, we can remember a lot of races this season for Renault that went really, really wrong. And the problem is that the car isn't quick enough often enough to make up for the unforced errors if they want to be fourth. And obviously they've wanted to be clear of, of the midfield battle heading into the season. And that's just not happened at all. That's We've not been anywhere near that territory apart from some obvious low, low downforce tracks. We've not seen. Yeah, a bit very uh, frustrating up and down season for uh, for Renault. Certainly now, Sergio Perez, seventh place in the, in the racing point. They've worked on the upgrade that was introduced in Singapore and they're uh, quite happy with the way things are going so good performance from from him as ever Kevin Magnussen now funny weekend for Haas in a way um Magnussen ended up ninth but he had the time penalty for not going through the 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 sort of marker bollards at, at turn two he went off while trying to keep Perez behind and got a five second penalty he moaned a little bit about that being a stupid rule and him not agreeing with the penalty and Gunter Steiner also wasn't very happy do you think Magnussen has a point uh, honestly, because he, he moaned pretty much at me, or at least in response directly to me, and listening to him, I was convinced. Looking at it back now, I, I don't exactly know, because rules are rules, and it's it's pretty clear to follow. It's It's one of those technicality things that frustrates people sometimes, but I think if it's the way it's written, so be it. Uh, it's it, emphatically clear what he had to do when he went off. Yeah. He said he said he wouldn't have been able to do it. He said that it it wasn't at that point he won't have made the the first ball out. And I am not totally convinced. Is he driving that. a freight trainer or something? Yeah, like that? I'm. That I, was, I, I think he could have done. Yeah, that's that. I, I don't buy that at all. I, I this wasn't one of those marginal decisions where uh, it's contentious as to whether he crossed all four wheels over the curb or something like that. He he went off. He there is an obligation there. It's clearly it's clearly marked. You've got every chance of doing it. And the thing is like he didn't even keep the place, did he? By by no, doing he, what he, he did. He so he so, place, so yeah. what, why do it? It's almost like I just think it's a bit of a brain fade to be honest, and it isn't the first time we've seen that from 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 Kevin. And it's also the the rant from team principal Steiner when he he came over and and said that he was an idiot steward that cost him a better result. I, that was a bit par for the course as well because Gunter is um, he's uh, he's not backwards about coming forwards, is he? Especially he's a serial steward botherer. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think it's going to criti- criticize. Her, I, I say. think on this occasion as well. I don't think this is going to be the end of it. He, I know that here team, the team manager went up and spoke to race director Michael Mazzi, and he also spoke to the the stewards of the meeting as well. So. 
I, I, but I don't think it ends there. I think it will. I think it might rumble on. I think the FAA will look at that and just say, "Well, hang on a second, Chief. You've uh, you've complained quite a bit about us now, and uh, I think we'd like to to have a proper conversation about this." Um, you said it was a weird weekend. I don't think so. I think it's pretty par for the course for Haas, isn't it? At times they look like they had a really quick car. Look like they might be on for a really good result, and they've come away with not as much as they as they wanted. At least they actually finished in the points this time. Yeah, two points for Kevin Magnussen. Obviously, that decision not to, uh, or he says he couldn't have made it. Who knows? Uh, the that cost him eight, uh, eighth place because he he did manage to finish ahead on the road of London Norris. So there's a cost there. Now Roman Grosjean was uh, was an interesting case. He. Seems to be struggling a little bit in the first part of qualifying, but then second run in Q2, he stuck at six, mega lap, and then qualified well. So he started uh, eighth, thanks to moving up one place to the penalty for Verstappen. And of course, his race didn't last very long at all. He only made it as far as turn four. He had actually already lost three places on uh, sort of the run to the first corner, which is a little bit unfortunate. But how did you see that incident where we had Grosjean driving around in 11th? Giovinazzi and Ricardo were side by side through the long right hander, and then uh, left hander. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yes, I've uh, the long fast left hander. Always a good to know your left from your right. And then they go towards the right hander at turn four, and uh, three into one definitely didn't go. I saw that incident a lot better than Antonio Giovinazzi did, in that I could actually see from a distance that three into one didn't go. Giovinazzi just looked like because he'd he'd been clobbered into into turn two, hadn't he? He'd taken yeah, a bit a of a hit by Lance Stroll, got a bit of a wriggle on, which allowed Ricardo to slip yeah, Ricardo, past him. Ricardo on the right. was kind of on the inside of Stroll as well. So and yeah, then it just on. looked like Giovinazzi just got completely distracted by the fact that Ricardo was on the right, on the outside of him and ahead, all the way through the left hander. Because when they then jump on the brakes for turn four. Uh, Giovinazzi is clearly later on the brakes than anyone else because he then lunges forward to the point where he's halfway up the inside of Grosjean, but with Ricard and and has obviously got alongside Ricardo as well. But it's a tight right hander, so I, d- I just I don't understand where he thought he was going to go, where he thought the cars either side of him was going to go. And when we talked about it afterwards and watched it back, we think we've pretty much agreed on this, aren't we? That he was quite clear that he just wasn't looking really at where Grosjean was or where his car would he, end he up. He was only thinking about the battle with Ricardo. So he ends up then getting to a point where he pitches uh, Ricardo on the inside into Grosjean on the outside. And I, I, it annoys me a little bit because it, sometimes you have people in the media centre and in the F1 media who like to make up reactions that, that people have and claim that someone's booing or someone's doing this. But there was genuine laughter in the media centre when you saw that Grosjean was out of the race. as oh, him again. And I know that it's quite an easy thing to do and you sort of go, oh, well, oh yeah, I guess. But much like when we saw the actual replay of the accident between Grosjean and Russell in Singapore, where that was much more, okay, I think Grosjean was probably slightly to blame there, but it was much more of a racing incident than than everyone immediately assumed. On this occasion, you, I looked at it, and we both looked at you, didn't didn't, didn't we, Val? We looked to, looked to Ed and just went, all right, Ed, defend that as a joke. And then the, it shows the replay of Grosjean being utterly, utterly, utterly helplessly pitched yeah. he, he off into the barrier. He left space as well for one car. And, and he was furious listening to his radio thing because he thought, oh, we've done so well this weekend and then this happened. So yeah, I feel very, very, uh, do feel sorry for uh, for him and, and Giovinazzi. Yeah, when we've talked about him recently, it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride for him. He he did pretty well. He did very well. He did very well in Q2. He was more convincing than Raikkonen. Maybe he's a little bit lucky in Q1 that Raikkonen made a few mistakes in his lap because that allowed him to go through in Q1 when he wasn't as quick as, when well, no, Giovinazzi wasn't as quick as he should have been. But it's a shame with Giovinazzi because once again, with just a few little errors in the weekend, he's had two consecutive points finishes. The Alpha, I don't think, was going to get in the points this weekend anyway. So to be fair, I don't think it was that costly. But just that misjudgment will not play well for him when he's trying to make sure he keeps his seat. It will not, but at the same time, yeah, even even in light of this, even in light of Spa, I'm still honestly yet to hear a particularly convincing case for dropping Antonio Giovinazzi for next year. I think potential-wise he's shown enough, for me anyway. I think, I mean, obviously with Hulkenberg in the market, if you can figure out a favourable deal there, then yeah, then you have to look at that. But otherwise, if you're looking to replace them with 
some other junior, maybe certain German juniors in F2. There's no no contest whatsoever. Antonio Giovinazzi has earned this one season, and I think in this one season he has shown that he has enough pace to make it in Formula One. Yeah, he certainly got uh, got the pace, but it's the Sundays that the problem. He just needs to be he just needs to be a bit more dependable and. He's getting signs and, and he frustrates me. He just frustrates me because he is quick and you think, yeah, he's getting some momentum and just a silly little decision like that. I can't I can't agree with the assessment that Giovinazzi is a better option than other people because I, I just don't see how any other driver would get in that car and only register, what, two points finishes over the course of uh, of the season? He's got so what? Three, three points for He's got now, but he? how, how many points has he got compared to, to Raikkonen now? Raikkonen's it's, it's still four, on 31. It's four to 31, yes. Yeah, so so I just. Uh, that, you, you're telling me that uh, Giovinazzi scoring four points as a driver with considerable experience, even though obviously, yes, he's not raced for a, pro- properly for what? He's not raced full time since the 2016 season. Yeah, he, he had three races over two years. Yeah, two exactly. So I, I understand that, but yeah, he's got a wealth of experience behind him from a testing point of view. He he's um, he's meant to be quite mature. He's done a lot of work behind the scenes for Ferrari. So this isn't uh, a 21 year old that's just stepped up out of one year of uh, of Formula Two and a couple of years in Formula Three. He's got a lot behind him, and yeah, I agree. You alluded to to you know Mick Schumacher's the elephant in the room. He does seem to be being groomed for an alpha seat in the future. But what what does Alpha get by having a Giovinazzi in a car? That the job that he's done this year that someone like Schumacher wouldn't do. Well, the, the the argument with Giovinazzi will be that he's had the half season to play his way in and if he gets to a level where he can consistently score, you know, he's he's learned, he's earned that experience and he's at that level where he can be more consistent. And that's why the the mistakes are frustrating me. But I don't understand I don't see the I don't I don't see any evidence from this year that he's got what it takes to be a top line F1 driver because he's he's quite quick but he's quite quick against a driver who we know is not very quick over one lap anymore and he's also quite error prone making mistakes so if you're, all you're looking for is a driver who's going to go around and pick up the points why don't you move heaven and earth to get Hulkenberg you don't even need to move heaven and earth to get Hulkenberg so I just I just don't see how Giovinazzi is a better option short term than Hulkenberg and I don't really see what they lose if they were decided to bring in Schumacher instead of him because you get a damn sight more uh, commercial-wise, marketing-wise, out of a Schumacher in your car than you do Giovinazzi. Well, we need to move on from Giovinazzi as we talked about him quite a bit recently, but yeah, another another bit of a blow for him. Just to quickly tidy up, Lance Stroll was 11th in the racing point. wasn't as quick as Perez. You know, okay drive, but yeah, not not at the same level as Perez. The Toro Rossos weren't as quick as expected in the race. They looked really quick on the long runs in FP2. The higher temperatures caused some problems for them in, in the race. Kvyat was 12th. Gazi was 14th. Gazi ended up going off at turn one and letting Raikkonen pass into 13th. Giovinazzi was the last of the finishers in in 15th. So that's the kind of a, the shape of the race. One uh, off-track thing we heard this weekend was the deal for McLaren to return to Mercedes engines in 2021. Val, what do you make of that? Yeah, it's an interesting one. It honestly, for me, it honestly did catch me off guard, sort of, because it's not every day you get such an announcement kind of sneaking up on you a little bit. Um, the thing is, it's straight line speed has not really been a huge problem for McLaren this season. Uh, for me, they shouldn't really. I know that the whole impetus between splitting, uh, be- behind splitting from. Mercedes initially was that the team leadership didn't believe that they could win a world title with a customer engine. Well, that's not a factor in any shape, way, shape or form right now because nobody is talking about McLaren winning any world titles anytime soon at the moment. Um, there must have been behind the scenes reasons for it to happen more than performance Re- reasons. Renault reliability problems. Renault reliability problems is a big one, obviously, uh, because without the Renault reliability problems, if we're being honest, McLaren would have been out of sight, out of mind for fourth place uh, a long time ago this season. Um, the Mercedes is a pretty bulletproof engine, even though it's no longer, I think Zach Brown called it a benchmark engine at this point in F1, and that's 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 a hard one to see, even after even after today's failure for Ferrari. That's a that's a tough one to see. But yeah, I mean it it does make sense, but it's also sort of it leaves the way it is right now, it leaves Mercedes with four customers on a 10 t- uh, with three customers on a 10 team grid which is a lot it gives them a lot of extra power it gives them a bigger presence in the paddock so 
as long as they keep their works team around, that maybe is a bit of an imbalance. But I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I think a sensible move. All parts of uh, that the, the just move to get this team back to the front. They're committed to new wind tunnel, long-term strategic thinking going on at McLaren. That's what I particularly like to see. Uh, now, just coming back around, Scott, to where we started with Ferrari, the thing we haven't really talked about so much, and we should just end on here, is after Singapore on our podcast, we talked about not being 100% certain that the Ferrari upgrades, the aero parts they brought in there, had definitely made a, a kind of permanent difference. And we wanted to see them on, certainly I wanted to see them on a very different circuit, a less bumpy track. Russia's not a normal track, but it's very, very different to Singapore. Now, Ferrari were pretty happy on Friday that they got a big tick in the box to answer that question. So what do you think, setting aside the wider problems that Ferrari have had in terms of performance, I guess that's the real positive they can take out of this weekend, that they, I mean, huge advantage, just over seven tenths on the straights in qualifying over Mercedes. It's not going to happen everywhere. That's that's a bit track specific. But overall, Ferrari's kind of baseline of competitiveness is higher than it was. We're sure of that now, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. Especially as we've got to the point now where there are no more major upgrades coming for 2019. They feel that they've validated the the aero progress that they wanted to make this year. They've added greater peak downforce to the car while retaining that impressive straight line speed. So it is proof of what um, what the what the Mercedes drivers feared early in the year that that straight line speed advantage wasn't because Ferrari had gone for a low drag setup that certainly helped a little bit but most of it was coming from the engine. So what Ferrari has basically got its car to do now is basically be in a position where it's in the ballpark and as long as that car doesn't hemorrhage time through the corners it's got enough in a straight line and offer of the exit of corners to to really do some damage and we saw that yeah here where. I believe everywhere except maybe one or two corners uh, through the lap, Mercedes was faster, but Ferrari was just pulling acres of time down. You know, three temps clear by the time they, by the time Hamilton got on the brakes for for turn two, Leclerc was already three temps faster. Pulled another tenth and a half or so through the long left hander at turn three. You just can't fight that sort of thing. Uh, so Ferrari has given itself a very potent weapon. It'll be interesting to see what happens at other tracks where maybe Mercedes just looks a little bit more comfortable with its tyre prep and management. And maybe we'll see at Suzuka, for example, Red Bull come to the fore a little bit because it's clearly had a couple of weekends where it's not quite 100% there with its own chassis. So maybe Ferrari's rivals have opened the door a little bit, but I also think Ferrari has, has definitely, definitely made the progress that we thought it had made in Singapore. Yep, I think I'd agree with all of that, but it's going to be very interesting to see how things balance up at Suzuka, of course, a very different track to what we've had for the last few, an old school track, quite uh, quite aero-dependent in, in many ways. You know, you need your downforce there. And uh, yeah, you know, through that uh, through the snake section at the start of the uh, the lap, you, uh, you don't gain any time through straight line speed in there. So that's all about car balance. That's going to be a really, really interesting one to see the next chapter. And of course, the fallout from the, uh, the controversy between the two Ferrari drivers. Let's see how they respond to it in a couple of weeks. Well, thanks very much, Val and Scott, for your input. Uh, do check out autosport.com for all the latest on Formula One. Loads of fallout from the uh, from the race and news and of course from the rest of the world of motorsport Autosport magazine's out on, on Thursday check out sister titles motorsport.com F1 Racing magazine out monthly motorsport news out every week podcast of course is out every Monday and Thursday so please do subscribe for free if you haven't already and do check out some of the Motorsport Network's other podcasts including the Tank Slappers that's the MotoGP and All Things Bikes podcast Gravel Notes that covers uh, rallying with David Evans who's turned up on this podcast on occasion There's uh, of course, uh, Flat Chat with Codders, the F1 Racing uh, podcast. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hey, what's up, guys? This is MMA fighter Clay Guida, and I'm not afraid of anyone or anything, but losing my hair was an entirely different kind of fight. So if you're suffering from hair loss like I was, then you got to check out my boys at Bosley. Pound for pound, they are the champions of hair restoration. That's why I turned to Bosley to get my hair back. The entire Bosley team was so professional and kind from start to finish. All it took was a simple one-day procedure, and I was on my way back to rocking my full hair again. So take it from me. Don't wait if you are thinning or receding. I'm so thrilled with my results, I just wish I would have went to Bosley sooner. It's time to finally knock out hair loss because the best is yet to come. Check out Bosley today. When MMA fighter Clay Guida was losing his hair, he trusted Bosley to get it back. Now it's your turn. Get a free information kit, plus get a $250 off gift card when you text CLAY to 203203. Text CLAY to 203203 or go to bosley.com. That's bosley.com. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.